clubhouse. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And tonight we're going to discuss the fourth episode of the third season of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. This episode is called God Bless the Child. This one was such a visual episode, Paul. And the last one we had so much dialogue with all this clever banter. And this one was just a feast for the eyes. I felt like there was drama, comedy, small moments, big moments, and everything was about seeing them to really absorb it all. The show has a definite look that every episode has to adhere to with you know the, the heavy uh, depth of field the occasional slow motion the drab color cast that's put on everything but this episode amongst all the others had several shots that seemed to be so purposefully staged in comparison to most other episodes they were like artistic shots that were like really breathtakingly beautiful. Um, Some, of course, were freakishly scary, but other ones were like, we're starting off this entire episode heading to the baptism of all of the Gilead children that have been born, and you have all the different walks of life, all the different professions, all the different caste system uh, levels, all parading together to head to I don't want to say the word church, but some place of worship, some sort of public gathering place, because church doesn't seem like the right word. You know, we talked about why the Catholic churches were torn down. Church doesn't seem quite right. Could be church, could be temple, but yeah, place of worship. Some sort of gathering house for sure, right? So just seeing them all walk two by two, uh, the different classes of people was, you know, amazing to see that many people walking together. They must have had radios or something to time it because because they I think it was very purposeful how the leading class led the way. The various subclasses were in various stages of, you know, behind them. Yeah, they were like staggered start kind of thing with the commanders and the wives leading the pack. I can tell you from four years of high school marching band, that is not an accident. You just don't (laughs) merge like that and everybody doesn't stop and everybody keeps going, but you get in the exact formation you meant to be in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I felt like there were so many shots. They had these like those wide shots like that where, you know, obviously the camera's like pulled up aerial like checking out the whole land was really amazing. Moving into the the place of worship where the um, handmaids were going up the stairs. We get another um, example of the usage of an eye as a subtle visual symbol you know that if you if you look elsewhere in the episode eyes just pop up you know like over doorways it reminds me of like the disney thing where you like look for the mickey mouse heads in this episode i invite all of you guys to go back and watch and like even like the staircase itself when they show the camera and you're looking upwards the shape of the way that the staircase is actually wraps forms this oval shape that looks exactly like an eye it's creepy y'all yeah so other like um, moments that i thought were actually like really beautiful was like the area that the indoor pool where serena and june were meeting up that uh, you know was like bathed in light it was so white and just just beautiful and i mean even june as a character was like wow like this is pretty in here you know you don't get to see a lot of pretty places in that way because you know the waterford's home was so dark drab and then i know always that the putnam's home has always been shown more airy and super high ceilings and bright but that pool area where it's like the women were finally coming to this like understanding i felt like it was like the light at the end of the tunnel literally it was so lit up 
Well, there was that shot where, where they show Serena and she's backlit by the sun coming through the windows. You know, they had to wait, unless they, they rigged it with, you know, lights and all that kind of stuff. They had to wait for the right exact moment of the day for oh, the sun I, to hit right there. I don't want to hurt your feelings, Paul. It's possible. I'm positive it was. It's possible. Nah, I, it was set lights, but that's okay. We'll we'll, we'll pretend that they waited. Um, but but it, had definitely, the, it had the light beams coming all yeah. around her. It's uh, interesting that we're, that we're having June approach a light bathed uh, Serena. That's, that's typically sort of like angelic sort of uh, symbology, right? Being wrapped in light. I'm going with the light at the end of the tunnel symbolism. It's not like we found the solution, but we can see the glimmer of hope at the end of this, of the tunnel right here in these conversations. Uh, There were other moments with Lydia, certainly her riding around in that electric wheelchair, even though it wasn't like, it's a rascal. A rascal. It was not like, you know, Lydia's never really meant to be comedy, but she has this way about her that it just has this like, dun, 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 like feel when she just kind of like scurries up on that oh, thing. Girls. Yeah, it's just she had so many small moments within this entire episode where it wasn't about the words it was about these just small things like when she was about to walk into the main room with everyone and then she you know is told like no you're gonna head somewhere else she she does just this move with her body that's very subtle but it tells you everything you need to know you know of what she was thinking there was so many moments like that that were just true acting you know true like expression on her face um a small hand movements when she's talking with janine um especially with lydia they they lingered uh, very much so the, watching her walk walk down just the hall to a chair yeah to the chair you know, just or, a lot of uh I've, i'm a little worried we're seeing her like swan song if you think about this if you consider serena being bathed in light lydia was walking to a dark corner and kind of like fading away from us you know mm-hmm. it was a, and we were and as a as with serena we were heading towards the light you know it was very different so much just visually to pay attention to but there is some story there too i think it's built around these prominent character moments changes in the characters or slight evolutions in the characters i fear that people will watch this episode and think nothing happened in this episode but i i would argue that these characters all moved ahead they didn't they didn't you know go out and do some big plot kind of thing but they did change they they were different after the episode was done would you consider this like a setup episode then like in terms of like because of all the the ground and the foundational things that were laid in this episode we're going to be able to point back at episode four and say oh those were where the seeds were sown right at that reception with regard especially to June and Serena. Lydia and Janine. Give me a break. Everybody, Fred. I think their arc may be a lot shorter than than uh, June and Serena's. The big, the big ones, yeah, you, this would be foundational f- for what's to come with them, right? Definitely agree. So in this one, rather than going by character um, for the entire baptism portion, we're going to do a little comparing and contrasting. We're going to use Hannah's baptism and the Gilead baptism, and then we'll even sprinkle in a little Nicole baptism at the end there. I thought, you know, it was striking how public and how everybody was involved with the Gilead baptism. And we're going to use the word baptism, although the word dedication was used at different points in time. Paul and I happen to be Catholic. 
we use the word baptism, but I'm sure there's a million different terms you guys could use. But generally, we all agree this was like a welcoming of the babies into the society, whatever you would like, whatever term you'd like to use. So Gilead's was so public and um, the church was so full versus Hannah's, which was extremely private and intimate and even being treated with a sense of um, like we're doing this because that's what people do. But I don't necessarily believe in all this. This isn't technically necessary. Gilead's felt like absolutely like must do this in order to become part of society. What did you think about when Luke said that he thought it was a way to tell God thank you for for letting them have a baby? I mean, when you kind of stack that up with what's to come for that baby is it too far-fetched to think that it's it's like saying i mean if they were to cancel the show right now then it would be like definitely they're saying god just doesn't exist or something to that effect because he took the baby away he made your lives horrible and that's it you know what i mean Okay, that's a big question. I, I I would have to untangle that quite a bit. I would say that in terms of the word miracle or the idea of thanking God, in my compare and contrast, they were actually used in both settings. Luke saying we need to thank God because no one else was having babies yes. and they got to be the chosen ones to have a baby. So whether or not you look at it like God was giving Hannah a blessed life after that, you know, like she was going to have a perfect, wonderful life. I was taking it more like he was saying, how lucky are we as the parents to have an opportunity to have a child when so many others are not? And I actually feel like that exact same sentiment was being said in the Gilead one of like, what a miracle. It was being said certainly with a lot more like of, of, with, of Matthew, with a lot more layered, you know, resentment, r- regret, these, these layers of just complex feelings. Janine smiling at her baby of Matthew kind of wincing when she sees her baby and and June trying to kind of say, oh, well, you know, he's so beautiful. And it being like, we, we shouldn't be here. You know, like we, our part has already been played. I thought on, on both sides, there was that sense of like, this is, this is a miracle that these babies are here. But then all the like, all the feelings that come under that were vastly different. I guess I was taking it like you're you're you're, you're looking you're at it from a religious standpoint i understand well you're looking at it like like thanks for getting us this far <laughs> yeah right? i mean yeah and that it's and that and that nobody else seems to have been able to even create life i'm i'm a, i'm definitely an optimist i'm definitely like the glass half full kind of girl um and so i'm always going to be the one in that situation to be like how amazing is it that these little lives even exist and i feel like that sentiment was on both sides of that of those occasions but you're right that it was like the twistedness of thanking god yeah it's like god gave you a chipped cup that cut your lip and then you needed stitches it was so bad that the cut but the baby's not that the baby's not the chipped cup okay the circumstances surrounding the babies are shards of glass absolutely a thousand percent you're right the world is screwed up but these little babies are these little innocent miracles that are like, wow, you know, they're, but they're certainly being dropped into very messed up situations. Bad cups. Or however you want to. Yeah. So then we definitely had this, this idea of these group vows that were being taken Gilead, this idea of a village of people taking care of the children versus Hannah's baptism, where it was like, we're going to only rely on 
our small core group of friends and uh, we're going to take these individual vows. Like Maura is going to take an individual vow and the parents are going to take an individual vow and everybody's going to really have their own role to play, but not in that same, we're all going to chant it together kind of way, which I thought was super interesting when you bring in Nicole's baptism, which was super quick, just a tiny little scene. Her own parents weren't even there. Yeah. These were going to be two strangers who she was not blood related to at all, who now were going to have to pick up the slack for, again, the insanity of her situation. But they were still going to celebrate the baby. It's, it's, a, it's another up week for Luke. You know, last week he was kind of a dick, kind of not being that cool to Emily. Right. But then this week he's like, well, I, I just think it's I think it's a right thing to do. And, I, and, I, and this baby is not my blood. But, you know, it's sort of like it's almost like a surrogate Hannah, though. Right. So he made the promise with baby one at the beginning of the episode, beginning of his relationship and all that kind of stuff. And he's like kind of in a way making good on the promise, seeing it through with baby two here, even though it's not his, but it's still kind of of him in, in a way. Yeah. Well, so in a super funky way, Nicole's baptism is almost a mashup of the Gilead baptism and Hannah's baptism because it, it looks so similar to Hannah's baptism, but it has that vibe of it takes a village. Mm. Like the priest or whatever, the religious figure that was there, he asked a couple questions, but he 100% went through with the baptism because it was like, it took it takes a village. Like it's going to take all of us to raise Nicole and all of us to look out for her because of Gilead, because of her parents not being able to be here and the bizarro situation. They both had their their pros, like the idea that it takes a village and that and that Moira and Luke stepped in for a baby that had no parents that were available to them um, was was a beautiful sentiment. On the flip, when you were just saying you give Luke more credit, I thought he did a great job at Hannah's baptism of stepping up and being dad. You know, when the baby like totally ruined or, the dress, he's like, oh, I got this. When when Holly June, was like, uh, let's just call it off. Your dad's never going to come. He's a jerk, blah, blah, blah. And Luke was like, whatever, we're doing this <laughs> yeah like i felt like luke like stood his ground at a time when i think that all of us have had like some some eyebrows about luke kind of being kind of weak yeah. and he was he stood his ground and he stood there by by june and you know made sure that hannah was cleaned up and ready to go and and even down to the whole idea of picking the restaurant and being like, you know, your mom's out there trying to convince us to go to a vegan place. That was so funny that the mom's not even vegan. That's hysterical. She, but she just likes to start shit is part of her personality. Oh, see, I wasn't going with that. I was going to go on that, uh, that she's got that sort of like holier than thou kind of shit like that. It's like, That's um, one way to start shit. Yeah. But it's like a, but to hold a group of people accountable to go to a vegan restaurant because we need to be we need to be so conscious of you know animals and whatever but you yourself eat meat is like that that hypocrisy is like oh that's just too good you know like that's just Those the are way called that social she, justice warriors these days but yeah well she just like is is just professional protester and so even when she doesn't walk the walk she talks the talk and so it's like kind of funny that she that that was like her whole gig riling up these groups of people i thought it was interesting too that it, for june and luke they were like we're gonna pick the restaurant because it's our day okay it's the day of the mother and the father which was such contrast to here are the mothers the handmaids seated you know way over here here are their the fathers of the children sort of kind of in theory the commanders sitting way over here but we even know that 
No, I mean, the guardian Nick at the time was the father. Like, it's so messed up. It's not about the mothers and the fathers aren't even present at this child's things, you know, for, for the, a lot of their births. And not only that, but like then the women who are holding them, we can go back to that argument of like, are they the mothers? Now that are they these adoptive mothers? Do they get the same amount of respect as birthing them? Where where do they fit in? It's so much more confusing where Hannah's is just so clear. And in Nicole's, nobody even cares. They're just like, is someone here to love the baby? We don't even have to define mother, father, parent. It's it's all, it's not even here. You're just two people who are promising to take care of the baby. That's good enough. How wild is that? It makes me wonder, and this is probably, I don't want to really get into this, but it does make me wonder if they had more time, more than 13 episodes to examine this world and they could show us more of Canada if the humans in this world of low, low, low birth rates have adopted something like the leftovers approach to religion, which is sort of like, you never said anything like this would happen, so we're not following you. You know, like that's kind of what happened in the, in the, in the leftovers. So let's talk about religion for a minute. So when we're comparing and contrasting the Gilead baptism, obviously that's heavily, I mean, 150% religion controlling their lives. Then you have Hannah's baptism, where Holly straight up says, you know, we shouldn't be letting religion control our choices. You know, let's just freaking go to dinner. And like, forget this whole silliness, you know, uh -huh. what was interesting, though, was Nicole's baptism was freely chosen. It was neither dictated that they had to go do it by anybody, nor was it were they being flip about it. My gut feel was that Moira and Luke wanted to give that baby the best possible chance of being like a normal, happy child. If you if you sort of like lined up all the things that anybody across the board thought you could ever do, one of those things someone would say, well, you should you should rinse off, a, you know, a original sin. You should you should wipe them clean, absolve them of all sins before. Even if that's one of like a hundred different opinions of what makes somebody have a good start to life, it was like they were going to try to do them all, you know, to try to give this baby the best possible chance. So whether they fully agreed with it, and this is something that June herself would be like, well, I get that. Let's do this. It's just my what I'm, I'm the point I'm trying to make is is just that I wonder if society at large does. If you remember, there was the episode where Matt Jameson, the priest or the yeah pastor, he baptizes the baby, but he's doing it at the father is doing it. He's like snuck the baby out because his wife doesn't agree with religion anymore. Fan talk, nerd talk. If that's the same sort of deal that, that, that they'd be running into uh, in Canada, that's all. I would think that between the birth rate being so low and the rise of something as as scary and as real that it's really happening as Gilead, which would almost feel as insane as something like the not like the apocalypse, but 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 almost feeling like that, like feeling like the world is like actually crumbling around you. I would say that you would almost probably have that same response as on the leftovers, where some people turn entirely to religion, thinking if there's some way we can all band together under God's name, we can fight this. Like when we, I think we saw that. Do you remember when June was going to go give birth at the hospital? Weren't there some people who were praying outside for the babies? Yeah, and, there was activity outside. But then, but the, so then there was like a concept that religion was still existing. But then I think that when you have stuff like Gilead, 
perverting the concept of religion, then the the people on the outside are going to naturally turn away from religion and be like, look. If that's what religion that, gets right, you, then, then, right, then I'm want, out. Right. So I, I, you could see people going both ways for a lot of reasons. But that's where when that when that man did comes does come in to baptize the child with Matt, his whole thing is basically, I just want to give this baby the best chance possible. Mm -hmm. And same deal. So maybe it matters and maybe it doesn't. So let's just do it. Let's just baptize her. Because maybe this doesn't matter at all, but it, it couldn't hurt, you know, yeah. is basically the idea. Let's get into a different relationship, Paul. And that is one of Lydia and Janine. This is a very complicated relationship we have between the two of these. For those of you guys who are not remembering all the way back to season one, Janine came in a real sass mouth, hard edged, I'm going to break this fucking system down kind of girl. And Lydia absolutely 100% breaks this girl, turns her into this giggly, silly, very out of touch kind of person. She has 100% drank the Kool-Aid. Losing an eye will do that to you. She just has this very abused child relationship with Lydia. A lot of people will say that, you know, when you have an abused person and the abuser, you might think that the, the, the victim would be very hateful towards the abuser. But oftentimes the, the victim is quick to defend the abuser. And so in this case, it's so interesting to watch how Janine and Lydia over the last now three seasons it's evolved so much where Lydia, you know, went from like really attacking Janine to almost taking Janine under her wing. You know, she will treat her with these kid gloves all the time. It, I mean, if you don't recall, Lydia condoned stoning Janine to death until June and other handmaids just dropped the stones and wouldn't do it. That Remember, that's why they were yeah. all dragged off. Absolutely. So... And then also... Lydia saves her from the colonies. It, it, they have this very strange push and pull, push and pull relationship. It's very odd. It's not anything where I would never say that Lydia like loves Janine, but she sees her in this, in this way sometimes where like she's a little tiny child because Janine is so broken. She is so broken at this point, you know? Yeah. I chalked it up to both of them in this episode having this enormous revelation where they have very unrealistic expectations of their roles and it comes janine has a very like caroline said she's broken at this point and so she's adopted kind of a simple even approach to well what is it that you want me to do she's she approaches the putnams and is offering her handmaiding service again what is the what is the right balance of of acting like you want us to act doing what you want us to do but not getting up on your face about it i guess you just, it's 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 like the the confronting what the society is requiring of these of these women is not what they want they don't want it all in their face they just kind of want you to quietly do these things they want lydia to quietly mind the girls they want the girls by, hand, by girls, I mean handmaids, handmaids to bear their children and, and just be shut up about it. Obviously, offering to bear more children for them in the middle of the celebration of their child in which Naomi and Warren are very much trying to celebrate this as their child, it is extremely delusional to think that anybody is going to celebrate 
you coming in and being like, I'm the one that gave birth and I could have another baby for you. And as much as her intentions are good in that she does believe, and she says straight out, I thought this is what you asked me to do. I could give you another brother or sister for this child. I thought that's what you wanted of me. Like, I thought that's why I was here as she's being beaten by Lydia. Right. You know, we're, we're watching this and everyone in the room is cringing because of what Lydia and Janine are doing. They're cringing that Janine is speaking what you don't speak about the elephant in the room. The fact that these are not their children, that this is not their baby we're celebrating. This is Janine's baby that she gave them yeah. under duress, <laughs> under like a hostage situation. This is not that. And then Lydia, again, this is not a scenario where these these handmaids are willingly here. We all have to watch them get beat in front of us all. Just the cringing on Fred's face and all of the commanders, everyone being horrified. And even then watching Lydia's own breakdown, the realization, I felt like she never said it with her words, but she said it with her face when she was like recognizing the horror on all of their faces and she internally said the same thing Janine was saying out loud. I thought this is what you wanted me to do. This is the role that you put me in and I'm doing the job that you asked me to do. I can't believe you are looking down on me now. And yet I'm so embarrassed and I'm so ashamed. And what am I doing? When she was crying afterwards, I believe that that's what she realized why her emotions reached such a pitch. You know what I mean? In the moment, I'm a person that is wildly easily embarrassed. And so I thought watching this, this display, she was beating her out of feeling embarrassed that, that someone that, that, that was in her charge that had already kidnapped this baby once before and was now making a scene in front of the entire government, basically, again, putting that down as quickly and as harshly as possible was the best way to show that's that fucking shit's not going to happen again on my watch. You know, Yeah, but again, I just felt like it goes back to this other part where it's oh, for like, sure, for sure. But Jane I thought in the so, moment, she's so her, her like closest, most favorite handmaid. They had just been in the hallway with Janine saying, I genuinely prayed for you to get better, brought you this tea. And Lydia does this move with her hand, which again is totally visual. I can't really do it over the Mark podcast, but she like points her finger and she does this like you like kind of move at her where they, they do have this really messed up level of love and caring for one another in this very messed up world. So then for like an hour later, Lydia be beating the ever loving shit out of her in front of everyone is like, I, I honestly think that we watched Lydia's brain just break in half, you know, and maybe her heart and soul too, that you can't sustain this type of behavior without the human psyche freaking out. Which is basically what I feel like Lawrence, again, going back to this entire architect of this society's goal, I think this is a lot about what these women can handle and what is being asked of them and at what point do they break. You know, asking those questions like, I wonder what voltage is in that cattle prod is a lot about this whole game of like, when do people lose their minds? Essentially, it turns out that the this warped rules and how messed up everything is it's like no one can ever play their part is what is bubbles to the surface of this entire episode for anyone. 
Like, it's like Naomi is trying to play her part of the mom, but it's like really not going well. You know, she's trying to be a good hostess. And then, you know, the whole Lydia, Janine, the other handmaids, like they shouldn't go eat off the buffet. But Fred tells them it's like nobody can follow these messed up rules. Like no one's doing it right. No one is doing it right. And there's just a lot of everyone being like, yeah, but that rule's stupid. Just like do it anyway. You know, like it's just so weird. Nobody's really even able to continue this as they're moving forward. Even of Matthews, like this doesn't make sense. We shouldn't be doing it this way. We're not following the rules the right way. Even her as like I would call the most outsider person who we are we none of us give a shit about her if she dies next week we'll all be like fine um you know <laughs> right yes. because she's just such like a naysayer but at the same time it's like she is the reminder she's the one saying like these this isn't how it should go we shouldn't be here and she was right she was right because the way it was set up the mother the birth mother should not be witness to this child anymore she should have been moved to of Howard and left this family alone, you know, because of your, your sad, fragile psyche. Serena tried to make that point with June at the very end. And did you see June's face? It was almost like, have you learned nothing? You know? Yeah, (laughs) I did see that face. There was a lot of that face. Actually. She's got a lot of that between the smelling, the farts face and the, and the like, no one around here has a brain. It's like Elizabeth Moss had to like practice all summer making these like really stern disgusted, face, right. just disgusted. Like you're a complete asshole face. Let's get into June. Uh, all that she was working at this party because there were so many moments that were so important to where this entire series is going from here. I can't say for sure, but I know that as a as someone who is into writing himself, which is me. I've met other people in that, in that area, the editors, the writers and stuff like that. And they're like introverts all, you know, almost all. And so the idea that she has had to adapt, I know that's been tough and she's had a lot of stuff to learn and go through, but now I'm assuming she might've been this introvert, just a guess. But now she's this person who is running a room in terms of like gathering information, directing people, manipulating people, having clandestine meetings, being in the right place at the right times, being seen or being, uh, being there, but unseen. This is like, she really made a lot of progress. And this episode I thought outlined where she is exactly. Like when I said it was a character moment, character defining like stage for her in this episode that maybe not a lot quote unquote happened. No, I think if you watch her, she's like, she's like, she's pulling a lot of strings in this, in this episode. So, you know what I think is interesting? I think it's interesting that you focus in on her profession of being in publishing. So, cause you were saying as a writer, as an editor, whatever, you'd think she'd be an introvert. Her profession is mom. What you are seeing is a mama bear who will do anything to get her child. This has nothing to do with what she did for money. This has to do with at her core, she is doing this to get Hannah back. And there is not a mother alive who would not lie, cheat, steal, kill, manipulate whoever you got to manipulate. You don't have to be introvert or an extrovert to do anything to protect your kid. And so all these little, all these little characteristics you're seeing come out of her are just that primal instinct, you know, to protect Hannah and try to get this whole thing 
to blow up, you know, so to save all the other children, frankly, to save the Angelus, to save the Janines, you know, save everybody. So let's start talking about these individual conversations. Do you think it's realistic that Fred would come in and tell all those handmaids, hey, why don't you all go eat off the buffet, even though that's against the rules? After he already got demoted, just to have a private conversation with June, when he could have just asked to go talk to her outside. Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, he, he had his wings clipped a little bit, but he's basically still got a pretty pretty egotistical head on his shoulder. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go that. That's not out of character for Fred. Okay, so then the conversation that they have, do you feel like June is just becoming so blunt with her interactions? Like, going back to Lawrence's words, so transactional, where she drops like all pretenses of even trying to follow along really any of the rules. And she's just bluntly saying like, maybe you need to give her freedom. Like, it's just like very almost to the point where you think that those buzzwords, especially something like freedom or voice or anything like that would send Fred running out of the room. Like it's such a glaring, like, I think I said in the first or second podcast this season that in comparison between Lawrence and Fred when Fred was sort of enigmatic in the first season we didn't really have anything to compare him by in terms of like well does this guy really know anything or is he actually secretive and, and enigmatic for a reason because he's so darn smart or anything like that and it's come to light like nah he's not actually that smart he kind of borrows a lot of other people's ideas and just kind of sounds like he knows what he's talking about because he uses the right words in the right order occasionally. I think June has kind of figured that out too. So she can, she's figured out what, how much subterfuge she needs to use. And, and it's just not much anymore. It's like none. It's like, honestly, like none. And I guess, I guess we have to remember that Fred would be pretty lonely at this point. When you really think about it, Serena was his other half. He had all of his other commander pals. He had Nick. He had sort of like people to talk to and June. And now with Serena being completely, you know, hanging out at her mom's, his household being completely busted. Like, so far as we understand, Rita's with Serena. He's he's literally must just be isolated island Fred. Well, the whorehouse. That any amount of conversation with somebody who will actually engage in a conversation with him, like June, I got to think it's just like an oasis in a desert, you know, like, so maybe he's not going to pick apart what she says or how she says it because he literally has no one else to talk to. He can't ask a commander, boo. Not about this stuff. What's he going to talk about? My wife's not listening to me. Wait, he can't, he can't talk about it with anybody. That's all I got to think is that like, you know, you, you drink your own piss if you got nothing else to drink. Like, and that's what this is. Like, I, I think this conversation is bizarre. And I think that in any other circumstance, if he wasn't in the place he was, he'd like slap her around, you know, this is any, you know, port in a storm kind of thing. But then there's that element where she, in her voiceover kind of admits, what is it? She, she should hate him. And she doesn't, she knows she doesn't love him, but she doesn't exactly know how it is that she does feel about him. I thought that was a little bit wild. I thought, I think that there's a part of women specifically when you see somebody who's floundering, even if the guy is a real jackass and a really bad dude, there's some part of you that has this need 
again, to like have some sort of compassion, have some sort of empathy, have some sort of like what the hell is going on with you. I think he she genuinely feels like at this point, like Fred doesn't know what the hell he's doing. He's not, he wasn't, like we said at the beginning, he was enigmatic. We thought he was this big, strong commander. Now she knows he's not. She knows he doesn't have any power. She knows he doesn't know what he's doing either, you know? Yeah. And so that's where it's like, yes, she should hate him. By all accounts, she should say he's a bad, horrible guy. But at the same time, I think there's these weird mixed emotions of like, you're as caught up in the system and as helpless in a lot of ways as the rest of us are. You know, you don't really have any power either. Doesn't make you love him or even tolerate him. But you know what I'm saying? Like, there's some part of you that has a little bit of compassion, you know? She's figured out how to lead him. That's for sure. Certainly. Okay, so this little plot point is put in there that, like, perhaps if Serena can stay behind the scenes and have this voice, perhaps she will come back to you. You guys will fall back in love together and everything will be fine. What do you think, Paul? Well, I mean, that was the case he presented that he wanted... To happen, he even said, "Well, if it if it helps fix things rather than anything, I mean that that's not that's that's even better than like maybe you know." So I think he legitimately just wants Serena back. I think that even if it isn't love, even if it's just companionship or that speech, as shitty as it was in the brothel, in terms of like practicing it, and in terms of if any of it was true. If he really did do those words of like doling out little pieces of you by just like peeping around the corner and that stuff, there is some basis of like really loving her or being obsessed with her or whatever you want to say, you know? Yeah. Something there is real and he is missing that, whatever that is, whatever ghoulish relationship these two birds had, that, that speech wasn't all lies, I don't believe. I just think he wasn't going to give it in a very sincere way. You know, I think it was disgusting, <laughs> but there was truth in there, you know? Yeah. Okay. So then June and Serena, that conversation, what'd you think? Did she truly motivate Serena? Can we trust her? Is she really going to do all these things or is she just going to be a snake and end up turning on June? There is always that threat, but uh, I'm going to want to, I'm going to want to think that although she's fiery and has turned on her before i'm gonna want to think that that quasi baptism last week of serena in in the uh off the beach took was like a real thing like a real symbol otherwise it kind of kind of cheapens the idea you know i understand that she might have a setback here or there but i don't think she's going to completely like turn her back I like that you brought up the baptism of last week because they chose them to have this conversation around an indoor pool, which I think, again, they highlighted the blue water. They highlighted the light, the brightness, the airiness. There was a real fresh start kind of feel about everything symbolically around them. I do think it's funny that you used the word fiery because that was something that I know that I was talking about with you. The fact that they're choosing to smoke together out there. There is a real sense of playing with fire that is going on uh, in literative, literally and figuratively. Every time we turn around that June's dealing with the Waterfords, last week she was lighting the candelabras when Fred came in. The week before she burned down their, <laughs> she was part of, she didn't burn down the house, but Serena burned down the house. Let me say that again. The week before Serena had burned down the whole friggin' house. It seems like the concept of like fire is going to continue, you know, let's burn this mother down. I feel like we've heard that line even in, 
handmaids. I feel like it's been like a tagline or something like let's Mm. burn this mother down. There's something about fire, burning it, hell, smoking, all this stuff that I just am feeling like a lot of visual symbolism and all this stuff. Smoking is kind of like a little way to keep a little fire, like, like a pet, you know, like right there under your command, right? You're doing what I say fire. Yeah. And you, and you have, it has to be like puffed on. There has to be like this, uh, constant tending to it. Right. Yeah. That's where, that's where I feel like you got this real sense of like, they're going to have to keep tending to each other for this relationship to keep going. June's going to have to continuously try to find things that Serena needs done. Fixing this one situation with Fred by having Fred loosen up the reins and have Serena have this background voice and, and extended freedom somehow. We don't really know how in the world is this going to play out. Like she can go in all the rooms of the house. Like what, what, I mean, what, what is, what is the freedom really going to look like? Because it still has to be within societal's rules. Well, I think what that might look like is that all along, Fred's always known that she's smarter than him, mm-hmm. but he decided to just kind of what are the guys like lock the office door so his own little oats and be like well you know the rules are you can't do anything so shut up and and i think this is going to be like well what would you do in this situation and then that'll start to like build you so know so you said that with kind of an eye roll and like a sagging shoulder kind of thing well i'm pretending i'm that, fred do you think that fred he's got his misplaced pride Okay, so was he originally, when they were in the original relationship, okay with Serena being the stronger one? Is it okay that That's what they portrayed. Was, if he, you got to this point, is it possible that like he's been through the meat grinder of having to be this egotistical, masculine, beat down the women, and he's been through the meat grinder. Like he's like, his his wife has been injured and won't speak to him anymore. He He's been demoted. Do you think he's actually coming around the circle to being a little bit more genuinely willing to let her be the stronger one? Not yet. Is he actually kind of seeing some any kind of benefit or anything to that? Is there are we coming to that? No, I th- I think we're I think maybe the bend is like the next thing that we're seeing. If we were the horse, we're not like around the bend. We're okay. like we're seeing the bend. Okay, so again, if if you went to the beginning of this conversation, it would be sowing the seeds, the yeah. foundations to right. these sort of what could possibly happen in the future. I think he's been smelling his own farts for too long to totally <laughs> give up on the idea that that he's he's a pretty top dog. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. There was a small conversation having to do with with Hannah and the idea that June does not regret staying because she she has the hope of seeing Hannah again. And Serena says, I don't have that with Nicole. And I really wonder about that conversation in terms of, I feel like it would have been so natural for June to say, if we get out of here and I take Hannah with me and you come with, you can be a part of Nicole's life in some way. You can see her. You can, we, we will keep you updated. We'll send you pictures. I don't know, freaking anything. Somehow to strike a deal. Now, since she didn't say boo about it in this, I'm going to go with that's a future conversation. Somehow I have something you want now. And it's confirmed because of our iPad footage. That's interesting that I could kind of see that going where like, wouldn't that be interesting where June gets in, enrolled in the Martha network. She gets, she finds out how to get out. There's a spot for two. And then it's like this, this dilemma is, is Serena going to sell her out or is she going to come along quietly? That wouldn't that be pretty dramatic shit, right? If you look at it, like the Waterford's house was the little microcosm 
Serena's the one that set the fire. June takes the takes the blame. Everyone else thinks it's June. But Serena set the fire. It does make me wonder if on a much larger scale, Serena will be the one that ignites the <laughs> shit and burns the mother down. All right. But it there will be a lot of, you know, working together with June to actually get get, get out of there, you know? I think so. I think that that's realistic. Got a ways before we get there. Okay, the iPad footage, Luke, and a demonstration. I I wonder about this, the, the wisdom of this. I, listen, this was a moment that I really, really wonder about. I understand that in Luke's very mixed up mind of what Gilead is like, there could be some kernel that he thought June would see this footage because he has the baby wave its little hand and it says, hi, mom, like that, like everybody does on TV, right? You say, hi, mom, right? Yeah. So one could say he did that to try to confirm to June, somehow that information is going to get to June, that the baby safely made it to Luke. Mm -hmm. But from a Gilead standpoint, it's so far-fetched that June would ever see that footage. There's no TVs. There's no... Nothing, you know, like it's like how obtuse is Luke that this baby isn't his? Why do you think it's okay to just be like going around the world being like, ah, look at my baby being on TV and everything when you know full well you have like no custodial rights to this baby? Baby needs a parent. And so far, I mean, Paul, the way that this went down with the Guardian saying, who is this person holding what is absolutely the Waterford's baby? I have severe concerns. That may be something that is tried, but I don't think that that I don't think that Canada would honor extradition or anything like that. Let's with, say it's not legal, though. Now they know where she is. Uh, well, that's a little dangerous. But Gilead's barely got its own shit together for its own borders. I don't know about about sending like agents, you know, to another country. I, I just don't know. America is another country and they go and steal people all the time, large groups of them, you know? And so like, I, I feel like stealing a baby from one guy, they've already chased Luke and took his one baby. Paul? I, I think of, of Gilead as a, as a pretty weak nation though, like a barely sovereign nation. You know what I mean? I even wonder though about Nick. I, I, I wonder about, I wonder about them all. Everybody's got these motives and Again, there was no pin on the map of where Nicole was. Nobody knew. But now standing where you know where the footage was taken, you know what city that baby's in, you know the name of the man. I mean, it doesn't feel like a big fat X is on their backs now. Yeah. Whether they have the power to do it or not, debatable, I suppose. But I feel like they're successfully stealing people every day. Not out of Canada. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Why else would they go through the trouble of identifying him? Blah, blah, blah. And so. making sure that she identifies him. And I don't know. I'm very nervous. I think risk management portions of this, I would say Luke took an awfully big risk to identify himself and the baby on national, international TV versus the possibility that the news would get to June that the baby made it to him. It just seems like risk-wise, this was not worth it. Like, it just wasn't worth it. It's done is done. We'll have to so see how it turns we'll out. See, we will see how it turns out. I was unsure when she was answering that she did know Luke with a lot of hesitation. She did answer, honestly, 
but then when she went outside and she lay, she went up against the wall, she did smile, which implied she was she she get, got Luke's message. The baby made it to me, and the baby is safe and happy, and I'm carrying the baby around in a baby Bjorn, raising it like my own. You know, like yeah. all all the message was was across. But I'm real worried. I'm real worried about Guardians knowing his name and location, and I think that it is a very real possibility that Commander and Serena went to that city. And we're able to walk right, you know, walk all around and everything. I just don't know, P. I'm nervous. It's not like they're not allowed to come across the border, you know? Yeah, but they came in a diplomatic jet. They had a limo. It was a whole thing. It was definitely a whole thing. You know what was a really whole thing, Paul? No. That whole moment where Serena actually gives real information. Let's talk Alleged about information. Ooh, let's talk about that. Do you have serious concerns about it being real? Accurate? No, I think it's real. I just think she didn't want to say that it was real. The way she was like... You know, a, a, a daughter from a family like where Hannah's at, blah, blah, blah. Like, she's being coy. But, yeah, it's, it's real. What did you think about that? The fact that she gave up some real intel. Here's the other thing, though. i got to say that. See, hear the word I used? Real intel on your daughter. Because Serena's got real intel on her daughter. Yeah, this show was, this episode was all about parallels. All about parallels. She got real intel on where Nicole is. Cause she wants her back and now she's going to give real information to Han about Hannah's Intel. Oh, that eeks me. That eeks me, Paul. Mind blowing. All right. So she turns on to say thanks. And Serena's like, whoop, just out of there. Like disappear like in the thin air. Batman. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, as much as we want these two to team up for girl power and saving the children and all that kind of stuff, I think internally Serena is still like, I, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> right? Am I speaking with a handmaid? <laughs> right. The woman I held her arms down and had my husband hump? Like, awesome. Yeah. Talk about breaking psyches. Think about that. Think about the absolute mind fuck of all the things Serena's done with June from start to finish. Like, it's insane. The range of bizarro instances these two have been in at this point. Some of these episodes are so uh, severe that we just watch them the once, man, and just kind of go off of feelings after that. Because going back and revisiting some of the stuff is not... Oh, it's painful. Yeah. And it, hurt, it hurts my stomach. It makes me hard hard to sleep at night. So I couldn't really catalog all the bad shit all at once. But I, I do remember that there's plenty of it. Absolutely. I feel like June did a good job of working the party overall, even down to trying and successfully saving Janine, ultimately. I mean, she did jump on top of her. She tried to do more subtly before, but were you surprised at how absolutely boldly, bluntly, she just yelled no at Lydia and just literally stopped her? Mm, yeah, I was. But, I mean, the, the body shield thing was pretty dramatic but it was like yeah not completely out of character in that it seems that what's the right word she's sort of been a prefect a little bit a self-appointed prefect amongst the the handmaids like lydia would always kind of eyeball her and and she'd be like she'd like shake her head whenever things were going on june has taken on some responsibility for the other women in the in the handmaid role Giving Janine the chance to pull herself out of the scenario without... Yeah, continuously being like, Janine! Destroying herself. Janine, no, like trying to talk her out of there. Okay, so this question is going to come up with listeners and watchers alike. And I know that people have contacted us privately, DM'd us, everything. What is your take on the fact that 
besides just being our lead protagonist here, how the hell is June still alive? Are they really trying to make us as watchers believe that all these other women have been killed for so much less and June remains, you know, she, even how you were saying, she wasn't even limping the week after she got her feet all beat to hell. How is this girl becoming so indestructible in a world where we're supposed to believe she's so vulnerable? She did recently have a kid. She's had two kids total. She's still in the handmaid's, you know, uh, age range, I guess. I think like we were discussing a podcast ago or two, Maybe not all of this information reaches all of the ears that need to hear it to make those decisions. You know what I mean? In terms of like, yeah, we see it because we're the TV watchers, but that doesn't mean that everybody knows and that maybe Fred is successful in keeping this kind of information closed or, or people are overridden. How so Lydia says that she would have never posted june again and but somehow she winds up at lawrence's house which kind of implies lawrence said send me that one in particular mm -hmm. you know what i mean yes so and we don't know lawrence's motives yet at all so maybe so, do you think uh, the like sort of short version of all that is she's now under lawrence's umbrella and that's how she's not going to be just killed at this point yes and before that i think it was just controlled flow of information like damage control basically Okay, so now we are going to leave Gilead, Sayonara, Gilead, and head over to Canada and discuss Emily. I think they did a really great job, again, visually and auditorily for me, not meaning words, of expressing Emily's PTSD. Her coming out of the subway, the bright light, all the tech beeping, the cars honking, the just overwhelmed nature of everything that Emily's coming into, I thought was depicted in about 10 seconds worth of overwhelming noise and visual all around her. Did you feel like the vibe between Emily and her wife was what you expected? I expected it to be awkward. Um, and I got awkward. I, I can't, I can't project too much of my own, thoughts into this one because I, I think I'm getting the wrong read because when I see the Emily scenes all kind of glued together, I see a person who is kind of feeling left out in the cold and like, a, like not, not sure where they fit in anymore, but I didn't exactly see something that wasn't a welcoming situation. You know what I mean? Like the, the wife was kind of weird, not entirely aloof, but just not entirely warm either but the son was 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 you know drawing pictures of her and 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 wanted wanted to hug her if it was okay but it wasn't quite okay yet and it could have been a lot weirder for her you know what I mean? and it wasn't it wasn't that high on the weird scale so here's what i'm gonna i'm gonna do for 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 daily review this week i'm going to say that this is such a developing situation between emily her wife and Oliver that I am actually not going to force us into casting any particular judgment, even a really harsh critique of this section. I'm going to say all that we really got was a foundation that they were trying to go slow, that the wife had in fact put up all the pictures of, of Emily around the house. Oliver had, had drawn pictures of, of mom trying to get out of Gilead. I thought it was very interesting that it was in a blue 
superhero suit with it made me wonder if there was a little foreshadowing to uh, Serena there. Um, or maybe they're going to wear wives outfits to get out or something. Cause there was in a blue super suit. Um, I felt like there were moments that were not said between them. Like for instance, when Emily says, I'm going to go and stay at the hotel and the wife just says, okay. I thought that that could have been played differently. And in a, in most realistic situations for me, I think it would have been played out a little more like if the wife was, if she's the the home team, right, and Emily's the away team, it's the home team's job to make you feel welcome, right? So even though it's awkward, I thought that the wife didn't really do anything to make it where the door was open to Emily. Meaning, in that moment, I think a really common response would have been to say, of course, if you feel like staying at the hotel, 100% honor what you want to do, but I want to let you know you're welcome to stay at the house. Right. I agree with that. So I thought it was very unusual that she didn't say that. And I thought there was a lot of moments like that where it's like what the wife didn't say or how she didn't really open the door for Emily, that when you accurately describe it as she's looking to where she fits in, I don't really feel like the wife set a place at the table for her in a way that seemed like, and here's where you could sit when you're ready. It felt a lot like you can just stand and observe what me and Oliver already do. I'm not really even comfortable kind of making room on the bed for you to sit with us. Mm -hmm. So that dynamic really raises a lot of red flags for me. And we discussed this a whole bunch. And again, I do not want to dissect this section because I feel like we could be really, really wrong on a lot of stuff if we go too quickly. So I'm just going to say that this section was a really serious foundation for me to have a lot of questions about what Emily and her wife and their family life was like before Gilead. Because the welcoming home, I know you could chalk it up to, especially Oliver said the words like, I know I'm not supposed to hug you like they told me not to. Clearly there had been some sort of pre-game conversation about how we're going to handle mom probably even to the wife, like, so your spouse is coming back. Here's how you should do it. So I get it that there's been a lot. So I don't want to judge her too harshly and say, I don't really get why she wasn't more warm without being overwhelming. I think there was, there was a line and to me, she didn't go up to the line. You know, she, she hung back way further than I was comfortable. However, I'm was going from a really perhaps flawed idea that their relationship was gangbusters before this all happened. And I'm kind of wondering, when we discussed the flashbacks, we really only saw Emily at work. We didn't have all these flashbacks of her and her wife and and the baby, and we didn't have a lot of that. No. So I have very little basis to understand what their relationship was before. I feel like we're just gonna say that they did a, a good job of showing the awkwardness, the uncomfortable nature, the, to use their word, the weird, feeling of coming back and how frightened Emily would be and how Oliver, I loved it actually, that when he was reading, the, they were going to read the bedtime story, wife is reading it, Oliver says, wait, how about we have mom, old other mom do it, Emily comes and sits and reads, but she can't really get through it, right? Yeah. I thought it was really sweet that rather than have wife come in and say and, and kind of push Emily out, Oliver took up the reins and read it to both of them while both of them were struggling to get through the situation. And I think in the Bless the Child episode name, 
God bless Oliver, because he's probably going to be the little glue and the little ray of sunshine and the little optimistic little face that these two women are going to need to work out their struggles. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.